One of the earliest memories I wanted to share with you of mine, actually I checked with my mom earlier this week to make sure that it's what I remembered. One of the earliest memories that I had as a child was breaking my arm. Uh, I talked to my mom, turns out I was between the ages of three and four, somewhere in that range. And apparently I was jumping around uh, on the couches uh, of a lady who would watch me during the day when my parents were uh, at work. And I think they were there, but we were just all hanging out. And so much like watching our kiddos running around and jumping, uh, it was in one of those moments that I fell and landed uh, on my arm, unfortunately, incorrectly. Uh, I got a hard cast, uh, and as my mom told me, I was really proud of that cast. I was, I guess, excited to have it. But that actually is not why the memory was so vivid to me. It was actually after the healing process uh, was over and when they were going to remove the cast is actually one of my earliest memories. Uh, I remember seeing the saw. Has have anybody seen this? I remember seeing the saw that they used to cut the hard cast off. And I remember kicking and screaming and crying because as a th three, four-year-old, I didn't understand what they were doing. I thought they were going to cut my arm off. And as you can imagine, right, that is just inches from your arm, it's loud, uh, and it was extremely scary to me because, again, I thought they were just taking the arm clean off. Now, I don't normally have a very good uh, or even reliable memory sometimes, but I think that that memory stuck in my head because of the fear. I remember being just so scared that they were going to take it off. I want you to each think of a similar time in your own life. Have you ever been extremely nervous? Have you had bouts of severe anxiety? Have you ever been afraid of something that you've never done before? Maybe a first day at a new job? Maybe going under general anesthesia for major surgery for the first time? We have a lot of moms here. Uh, Lafayette just had a, a baby a few days ago. There's a lot of moms that we've had here. You know, delivering babies isn't the easiest thing. Obviously, it's a great joy, but there's a lot to it, and there's a lot of scary parts about doing that. It's major surgery in and of itself. Has anyone here had a major performance evaluation with a superior saying, hey, we're going to sit down and have an evaluation next week, and then you're just in knots for an entire week? Have you ever had that happen to you? I know we all have, because that's a very human emotion. Fear, nervousness, anxiety is such a human emotion. You know, this sermon series has been about trying to understand Jesus, obviously, hashtag Jesus. Trying to understand Jesus at various and real levels. It's important to be able to understand Jesus as a human, not just God, but also the human side. Now, why? Why would, be under, why would understanding Jesus as a man, as a human, why would that be valuable? You see, for a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians, a lot of us have been Christians for a long time, some of us are more new to it, but for a lot of Christians, we do a pretty good job of understanding the divinity of Christ. We know that he is a God, that he's part God, uh, that he's holy God. We know that part. I know it's funny because the rest of the world, they have a problem with Jesus' divinity. 
You know, that's kind of the big argument. But for those within the church, it's really easy to understand Jesus as divine, as a God. But fine-tuning, fine-tuning can be a real problem. Is he more divine? Is he more God? Or is he more of a man? Is he more human-like? And understanding that really careful balance between the two is an important balance because of how it informs your relationship to Jesus. Understanding this human side is the key to unlocking a genuine, satisfying, worthwhile, interactive relationship and connection to Jesus. Now, aren't we, aren't we all looking for that? I mean, seriously consider looking inside. I, I don't know if this is an exercise you want to do now or do later, but look inside and ask yourself if you each can describe your relationship and connection, your understanding of Jesus like this. Do you describe it as genuine? Do you describe your relationship to Jesus as satisfying, worthwhile? Is it interactive? If it isn't, I kind of want to ask this next question. And don't feel bad if you have a hard time describing your relationship that way. I struggle with that a lot too. Are you familiar with the term to humanize something? Are you familiar with that language? To humanize uh, is to make something friendlier to humans. Humanizing makes things more understandable. In stories, you need to humanize characters so that people will understand them. To humanize is to make things more human or more humane and easier for humans to relate to and to appreciate. You see, so much of the Old Testament where we see God the Father, he is sort of this intangible God, just this distant, I think of this really big, maybe the big scraggly white beard, I don't know, but the big guy who sits on a mountain who's untouchable, intangible, not someone that you can be close to. In the Old Testament, you just, you can't, you can't even look at him. In this moment in Exodus chapter, uh, in Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 20, there's this moment where Moses is asking God, I'd like to see you. Moses has this close relationship to God the Father, and he wants to see God's face. And he says, no, you can't. If you looked at me, he says here, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Because God is so holy, because he is so big, because he is so incredible in his majesty, if you got a full blast, a full dose of God, apparently he would just knock you out. You'd fall face flat on the ground and be done. That's how big, huge God is. How tangible is that? How close? How much can you relate to that? That's hard. But apparently that's who he is. In fact, in their culture, in the Israelite culture, the reverence for God extended even to the point that they couldn't call him by name. They didn't call him by name. The true name of God in the original Jewish language is Yahweh. 
But out of their obedience to the law of not using God's name in vain, they made up a new derivative of Yahweh, calling him the familiar Jehovah. They were so afraid of saying his name. It's almost like this Voldemort thing, right? It's like, oh, you don't want to give him respect. You don't want to call him that. You better, he, it is him who is not to be named. There's this substitute that the Israelites create because they're so afraid. They can't see him. They can't call him by name. This is an intangible God. This is a hard God to have a relationship, a genuine, satisfying, worthwhile connection to. That is an intangible God. But this relationship between God and follower, this description, is really every other world religion out there. A distant God slash judge who evaluates us by our deeds, good and bad. Jesus, in God, is the humanized form. Jesus came down and he was made in flesh, which gives us a God who we can actually reach out to. This is God incarnate. The incarnation is the Christian belief that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel in a human body. The word incarnate itself comes from the Latin, which means in the flesh. It means in the flesh. The incarnation uh, is a basic teaching of Christianity. It is based on the New Testament of the Holy Bible. That is what the incarnation is. This is Jesus in the flesh. Now the flesh, fortunately or unfortunately, it came with human characteristics. Jesus ate, he grew. We talked about this in week two, right? He grew in stature and in wisdom in week two of our hash, hashtag Jesus series. He walked, he ate, and he experienced life the way we each do. He understands temptation and diffuses uh, the critique that we do not have a God who hasn't walked a mile in our shoes. Christianity is completely unique in the seat of all world religion that we have a God who has come down to see what life in our shoes is like. None other world religion has done this. The flesh came with all those human characteristics. One of them I think Jesus was not excited about you see, through incarnation, God in the flesh, Jesus also took on fear. He took on anxiety. He took on nervousness that comes with flesh. Now next week, we're gonna talk about Holy Week in a whole. See, Jeff shared with us earlier that it is Palm Sunday today, and it's this week where Jesus is praised on Sunday uh, and then is sort of listened to for a while, but then demeaned more and more so until his eventual uh, execution uh, later in that singular week. But today I wanted to dedicate a message specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. This story has always had a deep personal meaning for me because I see it as one of the most human moments, one of the most humanizing moments in Jesus's story. You see, this time, the Garden of Gethsemane, he is, this is really the middle of the night. This is the very early hours 
after midnight. It's after the Last Supper. It's after the prediction uh, of the betrayal that's to come. This is just before his, his fake trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and we'll talk about that later. But we're going to go through this Garden of Gethsemane Mark four, uh, in Mark 14, and you're welcome to join, uh, join me there. Uh, in Mark chapter 14, we're going to take just a few verses at a time, starting in verse 32. It says there, they went up to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And listen to these words here. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said them. Stay here and keep watch. Doesn't it sound a lot like Jesus is telling his disciples that he's, I'm scared to death. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but if you consider what Jesus is going to be facing over the next 12 hours, in the next 12 hours after this sentence, he's going to suffer betrayal, he is going to be arrested, he is going to be falsely accused, he will be maligned, he will be spit on, he will be mocked, he will be beaten, he will be abandoned by his followers and his closest follower, Peter. He will be stripped and flogged, he will be ridiculed and eventually tortured to the point of death on an instrument of torture, the cross. This is what lays before Jesus. Knowing that this is what is to come, Jesus, understandably, because he is a man, because he is a man, he is scared to death. That's pretty humanizing, isn't it? In verse 35, it says there, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but you will. Have you ever heard these sad, sad stories uh, of soldiers? who on the battlefield would sometimes desperately cry out for their mothers in their last moments. There's a vivid depiction of this in the film Saving Private Ryan where a soldier does exactly this. Although it's just an actor, he hauntingly recreates the fearful cry of a man whose life is ending. He's like, mommy, mom, mommy. He cries out because he knows he's nearing the end. And in fear, he cries out for the thing that comforts him most. I think that this is the spirit behind Jesus' desperate and intimate cry to his father in Abba. A name for a father, akin. He's not calling him father. He's not calling him dad. He's calling him daddy. He's calling him papa. Jesus, in fear of the coming events, asks his daddy if there is any other way can we do the plan differently? But in the same breath, he reinforces his submission to the plan, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. This unimaginable disregard for self-preservation speaks to how deep the definition of God and Jesus are as love. They are love. I think it's also important, first off, to recognize God the Father's own sacrifice in this process, to allow his one and only son to be subjected to the pain set before him. I can hardly watch my kids get shots. I normally step out of the room because I hate seeing that on my helpless child. There is a deep sacrifice in God the Father's restraint. I almost picture God sitting up in heaven with an army of angels ready to be sent down and to tear apart anyone who comes against his son, but he restrains because he knows that's not the plan. That's not how it's supposed to go. Any parent, God too, if possible, would trade places with their child rather than play witness. This is the action of love at its finest. In verse 37, it says there, then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, he called him, his name's Peter, but he calls him Simon. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. In Jesus' rebuke to his followers for their inattentive, sleepy selves, Jesus gives us the reader a picture of his internal and fragile self. He says this to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He talks to his disciples about the desire and the body not matching in mission. This is a direct reflection of Jesus' own conflict between desire and fear. Jesus is still on mission, and he is willing, willing to die for our sins. His flesh, however, his flesh is failing him. In Luke chapter 22, there's actually a further description of how Jesus' flesh is betraying him. After his prayers, it says in Luke chapter 22, uh, reading from verse 43 and 44, it says there, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, Jesus is in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling, falling to the ground. Hematidrosis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system to invoke the stress or the fight or flight response that we're familiar with to such a degree as to cause hemorrhage of the vessels supplying the sweat glands. It has been suggested that acute fear and extreme stress can cause this hematidrosis. Cases like these apparently are extremely rare. 
There have been few, very few, documented cases of this kind of bleeding. An article I found in the Indian Journal of Dermatology reported similar conditions in six cases in men condemned to execution. I guess this is real. No miracles about it. Jesus was so stinking scared. Although the blood, although the blood is an external manifestation of the fear gripping Jesus, Gethsemane shows us what was happening internally. You know, being a pastor, I've found many occasions, too many occasions, to be in a hospital with people. And I have seen fear and pain in varying degrees. I have a friend who was recently diagnosed with cancer and was there when he got the news and got to look in his eyes when he told me about it. And there was fear in his eyes. I didn't like seeing that. Uh, I had a friend who had some reconstructive knee surgery when she tore her ACL. And I used to drive her to therapy. And I knew she dreaded therapy because the way the therapist would stretch her would just tear her apart. And she'd be working through the exercise and there'd be tears coming out of her eyes as she did it. I didn't like watching that. I've seen complications in pregnancies where people were afraid their kids might not make it. I've also been in a room with a parent whose child didn't make it. I've seen a lot of anxiety. I've seen a lot of stress. I've seen a lot of fear. And to picture Jesus in an even more an agitated state is a stretch of my imagination. But if Jesus had simply died on the cross without having Gethsemane, how could we tell the true depth and cost and the heart of sacrifice? Almost like when earlier, just a few days earlier, Jesus comments to his disciples about a widow who put in two copper coins into uh, the offering. Jesus gives the context to her sacrifice. On the outside, no one could really tell how much she was giving because she seemed to give so little. In fact, there were many there who were giving much more in quantity. But by revealing the poverty from which she gives her sacrifice, her sacrifice is magnified, it is multiplied, and it is seen for its true value. Gethsemane is a foundational, heroic, and costly sacrifice that cements God as love. Gethsemane gives us this context. Even in the context of fear, Gethsemane is still more a picture of the full and complete submission of Christ to the Father, thus revealing their harmony. This is their plan. God didn't make Jesus do it. Sometimes I ask, man, how did God not give in to Jesus' request? Because they are love. Because the depth of God's love knows no limits. It knows no bounds. Jesus' very life was not a price too steep. That's how great he is. That he would face this fear head on. Apparently, his love for you was greater than his fear. 
His love for you is greater than his fear, and he was, he was very afraid. So this week, this holy week, please, please, consider Jesus the man. What he knew was coming and how he still, still submitted to it. He didn't run from it, but he embraced the fear and submitted to what would be man's wrongful conviction. He submitted to their torture and he submitted eventually to their murder. Really, to save you. So an exercise for you each, for the few that are in here. In the past month or so, Jaren's been organizing you know, people to share communion meditation for us, which I have found so much depth in. I've really appreciated the people that shared. The exercise for you that I'd love for you to commit to this week is to read through this Garden of Gethsemane, that you would consider the fear and the submission and Jesus' iron will to follow through with the plan, that you would consider it, allow it to humanize Jesus, and then for you to write your own communion meditation, to talk about what this sacrifice means to you. You can do this on your own. I'm not asking you to share it, but it'd be pretty sweet if you did. Read through the garden, soak in that fear that Jesus felt himself, understand his iron will to the mission, to saving you, and reflect on it and write your communion meditation just for yourself. Please do that. As a benediction, I'm simply going to read this passage to you. In Hebrews chapter five, verse seven through nine, it says there, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Heavenly Father, I pray that this week we would not be too caught up in the bunnies and the eggs and the candy and, and all of the sheen of Easter. Instead, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would swoop into our lives, giving us not candy, but conviction, a deeper, more genuine understanding of what your son Christ did for us. I know, Lord, that we each understand it in our heads. But Lord, if that news could seep down into the depths of our heart, I'd be thankful. I pray, God, that we'd never take this news lightly, that the news of your son's sacrifice and the triumph of his resurrection would never be news that is old hat or something that we get too used to. Instead, God, that we would be roused in our conviction, following your son into obedience and into praise and worship of his glory and majesty. Thank you, God, for staring death down 
working through it and dying for our lowly selves. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.